Hi everyone, this is Paul from The Atypical Rainbow. This is a content warning. Uh, the following episode contains subject matter such as Black Lives Matter, suicide, and depression. Uh, if any of these are issues for you, you are welcome to, of course, skip this episode. We would also encourage you to seek help from your local medical professional uh, or call Lifeline on 13 11 14. That's 13 11 14. Thank you very much. Grant. Uh, before we get going, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. That way you make sure you keep up to date with our episodes and follow us uh, at The Atypical Rainbow on Facebook and Instagram for interesting articles of the week and of the month regarding topics like autism and queer issues. Today, I'm going to double down on my Malcolm Gladwell love. We are doing an episode in the series ARAV Club and this is our first book assessment. Now, And the first one we haven't both read or seen. Yep, so basically Grant's going to be reacting and I'm going to be telling him what to react to. The book in question is Malcolm Gladwell's Talking to Strangers, released in 2019. It explores the idea of um, what we should know about the people we don't know uh, and how we interpret the world and other people's actions. This was the first book uh, of Malcolm Gladwell's that I had read. Um, and I, I read about it because the, the title itself was really intriguing to me because to me the title itself almost kind of speaks to the autistic nature of not knowing how to talk to people and struggling with how to read a situation, understand people. So I wanted to see, you know, what, um, what ideas it explored. We're going to cross over a little bit into one of his other books called Blink. Um, but we'll come to that in a minute. We're primarily focusing on talking to strangers, looking at it mostly from how it relates to autism and why it kind of in, in a funny way reminds us that, having autism isn't radically different from just being neurotypical because lots of people face a lot of the similar issues. So let's start with um, uh, uh, the, the basis of the book. So the, the core of it is based around the story of a woman named Sandra Bland. Sandra Bland was an African-American woman um, who was arrested on ridiculous charges and they even play some of the... Um, the, her interaction with the police officer at the time uh, on the audiobook version of Talking to Strangers. So she gets put in jail, and three days later, she commits suicide while in jail. It's, it's a horrific story. But... So what were these charges? Uh, it's, so it, it's complicated, and I would encourage you to read the book to really understand the depth of it. But she... So she made a uh, sort of inappropriate turn out of a driveway, right? Like, I apologize, I'm, I'm not going to explain this properly. So to people who know the case well, I'm not going to explain this properly, I apologize. I'm going to do my best, though. So then a police officer who happened to be there was following her. Um, she then tried to move out of his way because she thought he was trying to pass. But in doing so, she did something illegal. So he pulled her over. He pulled her over and was basically antagonistic to her from the beginning. And she, in turn, was being kind of reactive to his emotions and getting frustrated. And she had her own kind of issues going back and forth. Um, and then she tried to smoke a cigarette. And he, the police officer told her to step out of the car. She said she she had her rights. She, she wasn't doing anything wrong. And it all escalated. Um, but yeah, so it was over minor traffic it wasn't even really that. It was more like... I th I can't remember the exact charge, but it might have been, like, resistance to arrest or something along oh, those okay. lines. But the basis of the arrest was 
stupid. I want to say spurious, but honestly, it was stupid. Mm. And, like, Malcolm Gladwell, of course, talks about Black Lives Matter and talks mm. about the sort of the, the racial element of this case. But the point of the book is that it takes a much broader view on the idea that we actually think we're better at reading other people than we really are. Mm-hmm. So there are three essential tenets that he kind of explores. And the first one is default to truth. So default to truth is a concept by psychologist Tim Levine that states that we as human beings tend to believe people when they're telling us something, even if they're, they're what we think is kind of doubtful, right? Um, so the examples he gives, the main example he gives is... Uh, there's a football coach whose name completely eludes me right now um, in America. I think he worked for Kentucky State University. Okay. And he was accused of um, sexually abusing a number of teenage boys mm-hmm. um, as part to work, part of his, like, foster s- sport program or something. Mm-hmm. And sort of early on in the piece, there were all these people who stepped forward and said, no, this can't be it. it this is not the person I know. He can't possibly be th- this person. But of course, the accusers all saying, no, he definitely did this kind of stuff. And it all came to light that it was true. He did yeah, actually yeah. do it. But the point of the example is that the people who knew him defaulted to truth. They assumed that when he denied the allegations initially, that he was telling the truth. Because it it so, it so contradicted what they believed of him that it didn't make sense. So they defaulted to truth. Rather than looking at kind of the victim's accounts of the situation. But was that a default to truth, or was that a default to trying to maintain your understanding of someone? Because what what it makes me think of are those situations where it's obvious that someone has done something really horrible, but everyone's like, he was such a nice guy. It is like that, but it's more default to truth because he denied the allegations. So rather yeah. than them in and of themselves holding on to this, their own personal beliefs, it was more that, it was a combination of that as well as him saying, I didn't do it. Oh no, but I'm just saying like, so if they already had the idea that he was a nice guy who wouldn't do those things, then they were prone to believe him. But not because it's default to truth, but because it's default to he's a nice guy and I would have noticed if I was friends with a pedophile. It's, it's true. Well, I think that's the tricky part of it. It's like, yeah, the whole, I, I agree with you, the whole... Because surely nice there's guy. also, like, if you have xenophobia, you default to untruth. But it's it not... matches your, uh, the original assumption you're going in with. Yeah, okay. I guess, I guess that, that partly is a perspective thing. I, this is a tricky part of this kind of conversation is that you're trying to deconstruct something and I, I actually read it a long time ago and I can't really explain it as well as I could. I agree that perspe- perspective is a contributing factor into whether or not we believe someone, particularly when they're being accused of something. So yeah, if you were if you were um, naturally prone to being prejudiced, whether it's on racial, gender or whatever stereotypical bound, uh, grounds... Then, um, then yeah, maybe you would default to to lie. So kind of assume that oh, because they are X, yeah, they must be lying. Like if if you go oh, they're they're a politician, so they're probably lying. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess the the reason why um, this this I think from a, looking at it from an autistic perspective, why I find found default to truth fascinating is because 
you know, one of the inherent things about having autism, and everyone's a bit different about these sorts of things. This is not everyone with autism by any means, but it, it can be difficult to understand people. So I can kind of see how defaulting to something, even if it's not default to truth, mm. but it might default to belief, is actually really easy to do because it's simpler. Like, it, it's a rule. It's a rule that you can apply to a situation where there is lack of clarity. Yeah, like, I'd say with Jake, he... Like, over the years, I've kind of worked on the idea with him that he's okay to question people, even if they are good people, because they might be joking, Mm. not to believe everything he says. And he does it in the most adorable way, where, like, someone will say something truly outrageous, and he'll be like, you're joking. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Like, he's just worked it out. Yeah. Um, That, you know, the moon's not made of cheese, or (laughs) (laughs) someone hasn't, like flown there on a broomstick uh but it's like it's very cute but i yeah i've kind of like i could have adapted myself to always saying things literally true to him Mm. but i purposely have chosen to mix in you know jokes and sarcasm that's very obvious yeah so he doesn't just presume that everybody who he considers a good and trustworthy person he has to believe everything they say no matter how bizarre and absurd it is. But do we ha- do you have an example for Jake about where he's encountered someone he's decided is untrustworthy, where he, again, defaults to lie? Well, I guess there are certain kids, like, fellow students he'd have who he considers bad kids, mm. who he would probably assume they were lying, no matter what they said. Yeah. So it'd be very hard for them to redeem themselves in his eyes once he has that understanding of them. Yeah. So I think, yeah, it, even if a child who he had labelled as a bad and untrustworthy lying kid started being the best behaving kid, Jake probably wouldn't notice. Yeah, and that's that's tough. And one would hope that with maturity and experience and time, that kind of perspective becomes more nuanced. But yeah. but at the same time, there are adults out there who still just kind of hold on to fixed ideas of people I based think, on the behavior. I think we all do that. Like, one of the things in just discussions between the two of us is sometimes you'll be like, I don't behave in a certain way anymore. And I'm like, well, that's probably true. Like, it's possible, you know, like, it's been years since you did something. But because I've known you for, like, a decade, and because I had a perception that that was something you did, that um, I still thought of that as part of you, Mm. until you pointed out how long it would actually have been since you did something. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, whether or not that's an autistic thing, or whether that's an everyone thing, is hard. And I guess, Mm. I I, I imagine it would depend on the action itself, Like like, the impact of the action, the nature of the action... Often we kind of overlook people's good qualities. We're just like, oh yeah, it's just kind of normal. But we notice significantly when that good quality goes away. You know? Yes. Like, it, I guess if you're expecting someone to do something good and they stop doing something good, you'll probably notice. Mm. Whereas if you expect someone to do something bad, but is not constant, then you might not actually notice that it's been a huge amount of time since they did the bad thing. Yeah. If it was intermittent to begin with. Yeah. I think we we had an episode a, f- uh, a few months ago about the idea of how to be a good person, and we talked a bit about forgiveness. And I think mm. that's kind of part of it too. It's the idea that okay, bad you know bad experiences do I think alter us more significantly than good experiences do. I think there's a lot more 
kind of emotion and like, um, or like I want to say stickiness, but there's a better word for that um, when it comes to negative experiences. Yeah. But, um, but that's why forgiveness and not for, not forgetting the the actions of it, forgiveness is something you have to kind of practice at. Yeah, but I think that's also when the apology comes in. Because if the person doesn't sort of draw a line to say, I am no longer behaving that way, then you're just forgiving them, but expecting them to do it again. <laughs> yeah, but even an apology can vary. In terms like, of you know, I, it has to be a genuine apology. Yeah. But it is absolutely nothing. Like, if someone, you know, does something like, say, domestic violence or something. Mm. You can forgive them, but if you haven't talked about it and they haven't chosen... They haven't indicated any way they're going to change. Yeah. Then it's not that useful to just forgive them in your own mind. That Except is, for your own well-being. I think forgiving people can be good for the forgiver. Yeah. Even if the forgivee hasn't made an improvement. You'd also obviously want to make sure that you, even if it does continue to happen, you're not necessarily the victim of it. Like you have to keep yes. forgiving. Like, and... so, like sometimes it's someone who's, you know, out of your life or possibly dead. Mm. Then, you know, stopping holding on to things. Yes. Yeah, especially if it's someone who's not in your life anymore for whatever reason, can just be good for you. Yeah. Um, even though they may not have changed. Yeah. That's true. So the second tenet, which I think was was probably the mo- the one I most tied in with of autism was the concept of I transparency. <laughs> oh no no, this is hey, this is this is what we're here for, right? Um is transparency. You have to get me to debate Malcolm Gladwell. Maybe. The maybe. the great debate for Paul's heart. <laughs> Graham versus Malcolm. <laughs> no, don't make me choose. Um so transparency. Transparency or more accurately the illusion of transparency. Mm-hmm. So transparency is the idea that we think we can read people. It's this idea that we think that if we look at someone, we look at their actions, we look at their facial expressions, we can automatically determine what their motivation, what their mood is. And it even goes so far as to, um, to, to like this sort of almost a like clinical science kind of thing. So, um, in the book, he talks about something called the facial action coding system, or FACS. And it's, um, it's, it's these researchers have basically put together like, these sort of hundreds of sort of alphanumerical kind of codes to describe the muscle actions of each muscle in the face and what the combination of different muscles means, right? And so in the book, he gives the example of an episode of Friends. So he talks about the episode of Friends where Ross uh, finds out about Chandler and Monica, right? And so there's this reaction and, and he gets really angry to begin with and he's really happy. And using the facts system which is, I think, is the facts system system. You, you, you then, uh, they, they kind of look at this scene and they can break it down and they actually uh, accurately identify what emotion the actor is trying to convey. But the w- reason why he talks about the illusion transparency is that not everyone is like an actor or a character on a TV show because they're taught you need to express this emotion very deliberately. And so they'll put in, not necessarily exaggeration, but they'll put a lot of effort into trying to convey that message. Mm. But that's not necessarily what real life is like. Like people's facial expressions can mean multiple things or there might be motivations underneath that we're not necessarily able to identify. And I guess an actor doesn't have... Like if an actor is trying to 
communicate to the audience non-verbally what they're feeling, there's no use in hiding it. Whereas in real life, people hide it all the time. Well, exactly. They, they might hide it because they, they feel shame for it, which they mm. shouldn't, but, but they might. Um, or they might just not feel like talking about it. Like, it's just not the way they cope with things. Mm. Um, or... Or they're trying to de-escalate a situation. Like in the Sandra Bland case, right? Mm. So, uh, or they're trying to hold back but it's 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 coming out wrong, you know. Yeah. And I know I experience that. Sometimes I get angry about stuff that is normally minor, and on a good day I can kind of cope with. But the frustration I feel, as much as I might be trying to control myself, it bleeds out. Like yeah. I get louder, and my my choice of words gets changes, and there's all these different parts of it. And people will go, "Why are you angry about this?" And like, or "Why are you so angry about yeah. it?" And I'd be like, "Well, I am angry, but I'll you know." I'm, you're right. This is probably more than what it actually is. And I've only really learnt to identify that kind of stuff recently, like in my 30s. Mm-hmm. How to kind of be able to tell the people, sorry, I am really mad about this, but you're right. I'm not as... Like, I'm disproportionately mad because I'm upset about something else. And that's kind of something I wouldn't have had the insight for before. Yeah. Like, I think early on with our dating, I used to talk about the fact that you... You would come across angry when you didn't even realise. Mm. Like, you're kind of... I guess, forceful. And this was generally not at me. This was at other people. Like, I remember there was a DJ at a wedding. And you thought you were just reasonably talking to this DJ. But you were coming across very angry. I don't remember that at all. I think you wanted, like... They were meant to be playing some playlist, but they were playing the wrong playlist. Like, it wasn't a big deal. Okay. (laughs) But you decided you were going to fix the problem. Yeah. But... I point out to you that you came across angry, but you're like, no, I didn't... I wasn't angry. I'm like, well, I I know that. And I know... I believe you. Maybe mm. I was defaulting to the truth. Maybe you were angry. There you go. See? No. I think you were it genuinely works. not angry. Yeah, maybe. Okay. Well, maybe this is a terrible example because you were just lying to me. <laughs> <laughs> but let's, let's presume for the sake of this example, you weren't. Mm. The DJ thought you were angry at them when you didn't realise you were coming across that way mm. without a third party telling you. Mm. Certainly true. Yeah. Um, and But, I, sorry, the reason is not that I was lying. It's not either or. It might have been I didn't realise I was as angry as I was. Oh, mate. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying. Like, I only really lately am I understanding my emotions better and recognising when my subconscious is, like, bleeding out and trying to keep But also, when you're me. angry, you stay angry. So I think that you probably weren't that angry. Hmm. Possibly. You might have just had a few drinks, so you were louder than usual. <laughs> also, yes, that's actually very likely. I do get loud when I'm drunk. Yes. Um, so the example that uh, Talking to Strangers gives is um, back in World War Two. Neville Chamberlain, the Prime Minister of England at the time, uh, early on, early in, before World War Two really broke out, before the invasion of Poland, ha- actually had meetings with Adolf Hitler and was unbelievably convinced that they could talk it out that Mm. they could negotiate terms by which they could uh, prevent war. Mm. And what Malcolm Gladwell pointed out was that a number of prominent British officials who met Hitler all said very similar things. But it was the people who didn't meet Hitler, the ones who actually looked at his actions and looked at the the kind of work he was putting out. I I can't remember if Mein Kampf had come out at this point. Um, I imagine it must have. But yeah, all all the actions he took, like, um, like Winston Churchill saying, this guy's crazy... Don't negotiate with him. Yeah. Um, but but it then... So, sorry, this then leads into job interviews. And I've, I found this really fascinating too. So, 
you know, there's that classic example about racial bias, right? Yeah. So you give you give the same company two different resumes, one with a very classic African American name and one with a classic Caucasian name. Yeah, I think they they might have tried the same thing with like a woman and a man or something. Is that? Yeah, they've they've done women and men. Yeah, yeah, and and it, every, each time it shows that there is sort of this inherent bias that yeah. comes along. But the 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 way that he uses the illusion of transparency, and which I've I know I've so, like I read it and like I've seen this everywhere, is the idea that when we meet someone, we get a sense of whether they're going to be any good at the job. Right? We kind of think, oh, if I get it, if I meet this person, I'll get it, I'll get an idea and I'll know whether they're right for the job. Mm-hmm. But what we're actually doing is we're dating them. Like we're what we're doing is we're not looking to see whether they're good at the job. We're looking to see whether we like them as a person. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's unconscious bias. And whether we can argue that leads into things like white guys hiring white guys and all that. That's you know that's probably the next step. But again, it's it's the illusion of transparency. And I think you you told me before about um, a friend of yours who had who kind of faced that problem as well. Who they like they hired someone and they ended up being terrible for the job. Oh yeah, like so they hired they hired so there's two applicants and they hired the one that they thought would be best, but they also ended up hiring the other one into a different job. Mm. Um, and the second there's the one who didn't get the first job actually ended up being the better employee. Yep. Um, but that, that could just be who's good at job interviews. Yeah. Like some people aren't really good at communicating their abilities during job interviews. As I, as I have said previously, I, I know at which point I became good at job interviews Mm. and it was, you know, a number of jobs into my life. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) About halfway through my teaching career, I became good at job interviews. Mm. Um, and that's the weekend I got offered two different jobs. Which again, it doesn't kind of feeds into the idea. I'm not to say that you were a bad teacher; you were a good teacher. Mm-hmm. But your ability to do a good job interview was did not necessarily equate to you being a good teacher. Yeah, yeah. So I, I was talking a bit before about the um, the other Malcolm Gladwell book, Blink. So mm-hmm. Blink is about the idea that our subconscious mind actually has a great deal of power, but we don't give it enough credit, mm-hmm. and. Um, there are there are competing views about uh, Blink from an autism perspective because he uses the term temporary autism. Right, talking about growth, Malcolm Gladwell's books they he reuses a lot of the same kind of concepts, but you can kind of see where he's grown and he's developed more nuance. Mm-hmm. And Blink was probably an early example where I don't think he a hundred percent understood what he was writing, but he he talks about the idea that sometimes when we're trying to understand people using our subconscious mind. So you rather than sitting and analyzing data, like say a, a criminal profiler might, mm-hmm. but just kind of getting a sense of someone. Sometimes he says what we have is called, he called temporary autism, where essentially we... He called it temporary He autism. literally used the term temporary autism, where you... Like, we, we, they lose, we lose the ability to read someone's, in, like, someone's presentation, again, about the illusion of transparency, mm-hmm. um, in, in the moment, whether it is because of the situation, because of fear or anxiety or misperception or whatnot. I think the, the use of the term was, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure I'd necessarily say offensive. I think I can see why other, might, some people might call it offensive. I don't think it was deliberately meant to be offensive, but it was inappropriate. But it just, it was, I think, just kind of that, and it is a generalisation to the assumption that all people with autism cannot read other people, right? Yeah. But it sort of, sort of fed into the idea that 
people can be hard to read, but that the inability to read someone's intent and emotions is not limited just to people with autism. Fair enough. Yeah. Why I like this idea of the illusion of transparency is because it just kind of makes me feel like everyone has kind of the same problem. We all kind of need to recognise that actually it's... Well, that's what I was going to say. Like, based on this book, is the difference between, like, neuroatypical and neurotypical people that neuroatypical people know they're doing a bad job of reading people? It's... It sounds like the autistic people are the ones who know their limitations. <laughs> well, no, because remember that autism is not just based off one symptom, right? Yes, like, I, I guess when it comes to reading people... Yeah. Like, is it that neurotypical people are just more confident, but just as bad at doing it? No, it's like it's the, like the idea of introversion and extroversion, right? So, lots of people can be introverts without being autistic. So... No, no, no I'm, not, I'm not saying that neurotypical people are autistic. I'm just saying that... Is the book saying that we're all terrible at reading people... But autistic people realise it and other people overestimate their own ability. I, 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 sorry, I don't think it's that all people are terrible at reading. I think it's that more of us are terrible at reading people than we realise. Yes. I think, I think that's more, more to the point. There might be people out there who are genuinely good at reading people. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, in, in the case of, of Sandra Bland, which again is the kind of the basis of the book, I think this, the, the, the illusion of transparency was relevant because the police officer misread... Sandra's actions and kind of misunderstood what what was going on in her internal world because she had she was having a really hard time right yeah. she was she was going through a lot of things in her own personal life and she was struggling and unfortunately it came across like because she was frustrated and she was exhausted and mm. there were you know there were all these emotional things going on in her that the police officer didn't think to ask about but he read the her actions and her words in a way that he perceived to be threatening or antagonistic when she was just annoyed you know like just and kind of rightfully so yeah i i I guess in that you're assuming in that situation that he had good intentions it's hard to know (laughs) but you're also assuming that he didn't have good intentions either i think no but i'm like i i guess in order to say the problem was then you have to make a judgment about his intentions. Okay, so let's say, well, let's... As opposed let's, to the problem could have been. <laughs> sure, let's let's argue the semantics down to the final <laughs> detail. Yeah, okay, so you're right. The problem could have been that. Yeah, could have been that he misread her. Yeah. Or the problem could have been that he was racist. Yes, indeed. But then, you know, let's, let's go back to the idea of default to truth. Let's say he was saying that it wasn't based on race. Do we believe him or do we not believe him? Well... Based on people's opinions of police officers who interact with black communities in that way, probably we don't believe him because we have a preconceived perception of what sort of police officer this person probably was. Is that fair, though? It's probably not fair, but it's more of a default to lie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, and I think I think the idea of defaulting to anything is tricky. As I think it's a tricky concept to accept. I think we default because we don't have time. Yes, absolutely. Like, I think there's a... You can't sit there just investigating every single thing in your world as if you are a scientist and it's going to be a breakthrough that's going to save the world. Yeah. It's really... I I agree. 
I absolutely agree. Yeah. I think we have to... We instinctively default because we can't afford to spend the time making these judgments. And particularly yeah. in situations where there is high emotion or let's say it was an emergency, for example, we can't just sit there and figure out, is this person telling me that he's having a heart attack because he's being honest or because he's trying to get out of something? Yeah. Like, we just... You default the truth because it's the right... Well, parents... Parents of kids who say they're sick often default to lie. I don't know about that. Do well, I? Do no, we, we, we don't. don't because Jake especially is a very honest child. Like, But that doesn't mean that we wouldn't default to lie, though. Like, we could just be the kind of parents who go, oh, could. your children, then, you know, oh, you, you, just don't, you just don't want to go to school. Okay. I guess I'm defaulting to assuming parents, like, these mysterious parents will default. Yeah. <laughs> And I think that's just a larger issue with um, with assumptions. You know, yeah. we we we, take, we use these assumptions as shortcuts. To well, that's things. the thing. Like stereotypes are shortcuts. Yeah. Because we don't have time to get to know every single person we interact with completely. Yeah. And in most situations, that doesn't necessarily matter, right? If I think philosophically, it is important to challenge stereotypes, or at least to be open to the idea that you know not everyone is something or one another, but. You can't deny that... We can't deny that stereotypes... Type it also probably reason. depends on what stereotypes you're doing. Indeed. Yeah. Like, if you... If the stereotype of a checkout person is they're capable of doing their job... Yeah. Then it's not a negative stereotype to assume they know what they're doing. Yeah. But they might not. <laughs> but if you're... Yeah. If your stereotype is that they are lazy people who are going slow or somehow it's their fault that only two aisles are open and you yell at them, then mm. that's bad. Yes. Indeed. Yeah. The third and final kind of tenet of the book is, is something they call coupling, which, I mean, it's just a fancy term for context, really. Yeah. So it's the idea that when you combine the illusion of transparency and default to something, let's mm. say, rather than say default to truth, with a situation that often is kind of the combination of things that leads into leads into whatever the whatever the outcome is, right? So the example they gave they gave was the, the back in it was Sylvia Plath actually. Mm. So Sylvia Plath uh, famously committed suicide by sticking her head in an oven. Yeah, right? and she had a hard time of it. There was she was I think I she thought was that a was an attempted suicide. No, that's how she. That's how she died. Yes, yeah, she died. Okay, I thought she walked into a river. No, that's Virginia Woolf. Oh. Yeah, okay. you're mixing your famous Victorian era yeah. female. Like, I know Sylvia Plath tried to kill herself a lot of times. She did. I just couldn't remember which one was successful. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the I, the thing was is that in that era, um, I can't remember what they call it. I think British British gas was like coal seam gas or something at the time, right? Okay. Uh, uh, but there was issues with carbon monoxide leakage and, and production. It was, it was basically accessible in every household. But not long after Sylvia Plath committed suicide, they, they switched to natural gas, which has less chance of, um, of carbon monoxide production. Mm-hmm. And the, the general prevailing belief about suicide is that if people have ac- the access removed from the ability to do it, mm-hmm. they, um, they'll find another way. Yeah. But what the, what the removal of... But after they changed over from the coal seam gas to the natural gas... Suicide rates by gas actually went down, right? Because suicide rates or suicide rates by gas? Suicide rates in general, because you couldn't, yeah, yeah. there was no access to it. So that's okay. Yeah. yeah. You're right. I, yeah. Sorry, I, I did get it mixed up. Yeah. Um, so suicide rates actually went down 
for a period mm -hmm. because people had less access. Like, couldn't just do it in their own homes anymore. Okay. Right? So basically, so what that the example that was highlighting was that the the circumstance itself can be part of the problem. So I th I can't remember this is the exact thing he was tying into, but police access to guns, right? Mm -hmm. So guns automatically escalate a situation. Yes. So. While, while by no means am, uh, am I or the book attributing the what happened, well, the terrible thing that happened to Sandra Bland down to one particular element, right? Mm. Um, the whole point is that it is a complex situation, is that multiple factors came into it. But coupling was the the idea that the circumstances, the fact that um, you know she was having have a hard time, was trying to do the right thing. As I said, she was trying to get off the road so that the policeman could pass by, but yeah. she was being reprimanded for doing that. That would be upsetting to anyone, right? Yeah. But then the police officer was misinterpreting her. He had the illusion of transparency. He saw her frustration as antagonism and potentially, yes, saw the colour of her skin and was took it as, as a greater threat. Mm -hmm. And then you threw a gun into the mix, right? Yeah. Um, whereas if given the right circumstances, given the right training, the ability to de-escalate, be able to kind of just spend the time to understand someone, you take you kind of understand the context and then the whole thing kind of settles down, whereas everyone yeah. kind of reacting to each other in the wrong way and reacting to the, the, the understandably reacting to the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, some of the uh, training of police officers in America and the language they use is concerning. I I'm not familiar with that. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, it's all a war, you're in a battle, like, it's obvious that they're going to see, you know, civilians and generally civilians of colour as enemies mm. and dangers. Which is not what you really want your police to be thinking. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, that does, I guess, come into the context of it. Oh, and the other... Sorry. The other thing about context in this situation is that, if I remember correctly, at the time, there was an increased push in the region of where that police officer to essentially pick people up for more crimes. Right? Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, because... There was this belief that you could catch more people who were doing bad things incidentally than if you deliberately try to catch them in the act. So I think there was something in in New York where they actually caught a lot of people who were like selling weapons and stuff just by um, like random pullovers. Like, oh no, your brake lights out. Mm -hmm. Let's check your trunk. Hey, here's some guns. Okay. Um, and so, but that again, that was an oversimplified concept. But unfortunately, that oversimplified concept spread. And so, I think, I believe that in this police officer's region, he was told, do more pullovers and do more of these things. Yeah. So, once again, it, it was kind of... Yeah, the quota. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, there were circumstances under which, like, if... Because she didn't do anything particularly wrong to begin with. Like, she, she, I think she went in the wrong lane or turned a bit fast or something. Yeah. That first kind of infringement that he was following her for, you know, in the context of things, you just leave it. You're like, okay, minor infringement. Mm -hmm. But... With the the pressure to do more of these checks and do more of these inappropriate pullovers, it kind of led to into kind of these circumstances. Yeah. So once again, so again, that comes back to the idea of coupling. That it's just there are the context of the situation feeds into so it. So you said so she got pulled. So she got pulled over and arrested, and then three days later she was she was still in jail. She was still in jail. She was kept in jail, and on the third day she committed suicide. Okay. Mm. That sounds like a system failing it is yeah because even if yeah even if the first guy overreacted to her seeming frustrated it sh it should have been a 
I guess, a problem that could have been fixed. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. It shouldn't have happened. None of it should have happened the way it did. Mm. Um, and it is, it was a terrible thing to happen to someone who didn't, didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. Um, but I think why, and the book certainly doesn't shy away from that. It doesn't claim, like these, these kind of, um, analyses of the behaviors and the circumstances aren't about excusing what happened, Mm. but I think that can be sometimes the problem is that we, once again, we kind of oversimplify the situation. It, It could be, oh, well, it's all about race. And it's not to say that race isn't part of it. Yeah. But there might be more to it. There might be something inherently kind of human about it. Though, like, my thought is, if she's still in jail three days later for a minor trafficking thing, it probably has something to do with class and yeah access to wealth. And but again, you're which is tied to race. But but yeah, that's but the thing is though is that isolating that doesn't make it untrue. Mm. But you're not looking at it in the bigger picture. Oh no, I'm just saying. Yeah, I know it just. This is an area that fascinates me, the legal system. So, <laughs> sure, yeah. So, forgive me my tangents. That's all right. I, I, the the tangents isn't necessarily what I'm pointing out. What I'm pointing yeah. out is that, and what the book is kind of highlighting is there are multiple facets to it. And should the system be fixed? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Right. Um, but are there things we can look at in ourselves? I think I think that's what it, what really struck me about this book is really about me looking at myself and the way I perceive the world and the way I perceive people mm-hmm. and kind of go, can we behave differently? Can we make different... Can we kind of recognise our defaults and our, our flaws and our illusions and to the best of our ability, challenge them? Yeah, I guess my final thought would be that you can't fix something unless you admit you have a problem. Yes. And most people probably... Like, based on this book, it seems like most people don't realise they have a problem. Yes, that is certainly true. So you know, for the for the thirty people who listen to this uh, this podcast, you know, if we can get thirty people, Our thirty to, favorite people, yeah, if we can get the, if if that's something that they hadn't realized in themselves, mm-hmm. and it might be worth reevaluating to see whether or not it's something they can work on, and, and kind of recognizing that again, it is these things aren't unusual. That's, I think that's the point of it, is that these kinds of flaws, there might be evolutionary. So default truth just allows us to be able to function, right? Or defaults in general allows us to get by. But as long Well, yeah, as- I guess the default to truth with your in-group and the default to lie from the out-group is very evolutionary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but as long as we can kind of recognize those things yeah. and, and understand that they don't apply to every situation, yeah. it helps us to be kinder people. Mm. You know, so that's that's what I took away from the book. Yeah, hmm. fair enough. And Thank you for sharing that book with me. That's okay. If you and you know maybe you'll share something with me in the future, and we can maybe. I can criticize it. <laughs> How does the plot of Final Fantasy fourteen fit with autism? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thanks for listening. Um, we hope you enjoyed what you heard, um, and we'll uh, we'll talk to you next time.